welcome back to Dam the River. I'm your host, James Macbeth Dan. This is episode 5, All's Well That Crom's Well. In this series, I'm diving into the history of hydroelectric power in New Zealand, looking at the impact this technological shift had on the country's growth and development. As it has been a long time between episodes, here is a brief recap on how we got here. In the first episode, I looked at some of the early schemes and the first foray of the government into the sphere. Episode 2 looked at a couple of larger schemes in the period between the two wars and the social changes brought by both the availability of power and the organisation of the labour who supplied it. In episode 3, I discussed the post-war consolidation of hydropower and how both power and dams played a major role in shaping New Zealand's post-war drive towards modernity. In episode 4, I looked at Manapori Power Station, the largest in the country. It was a project fraught with challenges, from the remote location and hostile climate, to the vagaries of supplying power for international industrial clients, through to the emergence of opposition to the project and the awakening of a popular environmental movement. While I thought that was complex, it was nothing compared to the last major dam the state built at Clyde in central Otago. Planning for this scheme started in the early 60s, but the dam wasn't officially opened until 1994. It was a project beset with issues, whether they be due to the landscape and geology of the region, or the shifting political tides through the 70s and 80s. Along the way, a gorge was dammed, a town flooded and rebuilt, and we started to think big as a nation. This episode, like the dam that it covers, has experienced many unexpected and extended delays. It has blown out as I try to bring all the tributaries of the Upper Clutha story together into one powerful, cohesive channel. Naitahu know the Clutha River is Mata'au. Mata'au was part of an important Mahingakai trail, bringing people from the Otako region up into the centre of the island, searching for kai and other taonga. It was also an important route for the transport of greenstone from inland areas down the river to the tribes of the east coast, where it was traded both north and south. It was for a time the border between the territory controlled by Naitahu and Ngāti Māmoi, Naitahu's guardianship of the river would be enshrined in the treaty settlement with the Crown in 1998, but there was a lot of water to flow under the bridge, so to speak, before they got to that point. Since the end of the war, demand for power had continued to grow, year on year, and the government had no reason to think that this growth would slow. When Roxburgh opened in 1956, it provided 320 megawatts of power from the waters of the Clutha. Many of the people who had worked on the site moved straight to, onto Benmore. With this due for completion by the mid-1960s, Manapori was the next big project in the government's queue. The government started planning for future projects that would be needed once Manapori was operational, which was expected to be around 1970. With the greatest flow of any river in the country, it was always likely that development would return to the Clutha. Cabinet gave approval for further investigation of the Clutha River in October of 1962, and the first proper report was produced in 1964. In November of 1965, the Minister of Electricity, Tom Shand, announced that a five-dam proposal on the Clutha would be investigated in more depth, with the dam at Roxburgh to be joined by ones at Clyde, Lowburn, Kawaro and Lugate. It was determined that Lake Wakatipu couldn't be raised due to the existing township at Queenstown, but Lake Wanaka had potential as a storage lake. Nearly half of the Clutha's water came from Wanaka, so it was a very important source. One early proposal suggested a dam that would have flooded Cromwell and created a storage lake that went all the way back up the river to Wanaka. This was ruled out. In 
1968 and 69, meetings were held in Cromwell, Alexandra, Wanaka and Albertown to discuss the proposals. The opposition to the proposals was strong and growing. The Otago Daily Times, the most important newspaper in the region, was full of letters about the proposals, which ran strongly in opposition. The ODT's opposition was strident, with John Martin, author of People, Politics and Power Stations, describing their attitude to any new Clutha development as, quote, relentlessly hostile. In 1971, an interdepartmental report on hydroelectric in the Clutha Valley was prepared. This was released in May of 1972 and identified several development proposals. John Hannibal George, the national MP for Otago Central, brought a private member's bill to the House that would have prevented Lake Wanaka from being part of any scheme. The bill was shelved, but the fact that a national MP would even raise this in opposition to his own party shows the depths of feeling in the region. There was a change of government in 1972, the first in 12 years. Norm Kirk's Labour took office, in part due to strong opposition to the raising of Lake Manapori. On the back of this, Labour swept through the electorates at the bottom of the South Island, winning all but one of the seats. This included Otago Central, where the proposals for a dam at Clyde were a big issue. The new Minister of Electricity, Hugh Watt, promised that Labour would legislate for the protection of Lake Wanaka, that they would not flood productive land in the Cromwell Gorge, and that they would build no new dams below Roxburgh. The Lake Wanaka Preservation Act, which was passed in 1973, took the lake off the table. This ruled out one of the development proposals, known as Scheme D, which required Lake Wanaka to be controlled and act as a storage lake for dams downstream. The government set up a Clutha Valley Development Commission, chaired by RJ Calvert, with five Otago-based members. Their report in late 1974 proposed six new power stations on the Clutha and Kawaro, which feeds into the Clutha. Norm Kirk died suddenly in office and was replaced by Bill Rowling as Prime Minister. On September 17, 1975, Rowling announced that Cabinet had agreed to Scheme H, with dams at Clyde, Cromwell, Queensbury, Lugate and two on the Kawaro, as outlined previously by the Clutha Valley Development Commission, chaired by RJ Calvert. At the general election in 1975, Robert Muldoon's National won back the government benches. National also won back the Otago Central seat, with the former Mayor of Queenstown, Warren Cooper, beginning what would be a 21-year term as the local MP. The incoming government promised to review the proposals in the Calvert Commission and set up a Clutha Valley Authority. Cooper also pledged to reduce the height of the dam below Cromwell. Scheme H, approved by former PM Rowling, was the preferred option of the Calvert Commission as well as the Commissioner for the Environment. However, the Ministry of Works and Development, the Electricity Department, and Treasury were all in favour of Scheme F. Four of the dams in Scheme F and H were identical, those at Queensbury, Lugate and the two on the Kawaro. The main difference was that H had a low dam at Clyde and another at Cromwell, while F didn't have one at Cromwell, but the dam at Clyde was a high one. This meant that while both schemes F and H would see parts of Cromwell and Lowburn flooded, only F would see the Cromwell Gorge flooded and turned into a storage lake. H would retain the 86 hectares of land, mainly orchards, along the gorge. To add to the confusion, ministers in the new government had visited the area and asked for another solution to be put forward that would generate as much power as schemes F and H, but without flooding as much farmland. This scheme would be known as NV1 and would flood the Cromwell Gorge, but not the town and not Lowburn. It would also allow for more dams on the Clutha, 
but was considered to be significantly more expensive than the other two for the same amount of power generation. A committee was formed to assess options F, H and NV1. They recommended H. On December 20th, 1976, the government announced that they had decided on scheme F. There was widespread dismay at the decision. At a public meeting held in Cromwell in March of 1977, 350 people attended to show their objection to Scheme F. Warren Cooper also attended and made no apology for the government's decision being influenced by economic factors. Later, in 1980, Cooper, who was now the Minister of Regional Development, attempted to justify the government's decision on economic grounds. He said, The high cost of imported oil made it important to proceed with Scheme F on the Clutha River. We thought that 1973's oil price rise was bad, but the 1979 one was horrendous. This year the country would pay $1.3 billion for imported fuel, and processing industries were now paying more attention to the country's hydroelectric potential. It is completely illogical and illusory to suggest that rivers should continue to run to waste water. It is one of our best raw materials, and it should be sold as we sell scenery. Surely both are indigenous renewable resources. The people of the Cromwell, Clyde and Alexandra areas are fully aware of the government's intention to proceed with Scheme F, but I am disappointed that progress has been painfully slow and continually bedeviled by a series of court actions and water rights hearings. As Cooper alluded to, the objections to the scheme weren't just public opinion, but also legal. There were a number of property rights issues to resolve, as well as obtaining the rights to use the water from the river. The government's application to construct the Clyde Dam went before the Otago Catchment Board in early September of 1977. The government could have bypassed this process by designating the Clutha to be a water of national interest, but given the widespread opposition to the scheme, they were probably prudent to at least be seen to go through the due process. The Otago Catchment Board received 209 submissions, with the vast majority opposed to the scheme. The board refused to recommend the water right for the high dam as required in Scheme F, but did not oppose Scheme H with the low dam at Clyde. The Otago Catchment Board reported to the National Water and Soil Conservation Authority, which was chaired by Bill Young, the Minister of Works. The authority argued that they could not grant a right for a low dam if they had rejected a high dam. They then decided to approve Scheme F, the high dam, in December of 1977. By February of 1978, there were 17 appeals lodged with the Planning Tribunal against the water right. These were heard by the Supreme Court in April 1978. There was also a judicial review of the decision made by the National Water and Soil Conservation Authority. While the issue of water rights dragged on through the courts, the Government's Power Planning Committee recommended to the Government that the need for Clyde's power could be deferred by four years, out to 1987. This was due to lower-than-expected rises in power consumption, a depressed economy and high unemployment. In 1979, the completion date for the project was shifted out again, now to 1991. As the demand for power dropped, the case for building a massive power plant got weaker and weaker. In an attempt to promote economic growth, the Muldoon government embarked on a series of large infrastructure and engineering projects, known as Think Big. The Clyde Dam itself was one of these Think Big projects, as was a proposal for a second aluminium smelter at Aramoana. The Tiwaipoit aluminium smelter had been built in the early 1970s, using large amounts of the power produced from the Manapori power station. 
When surveyors were spotted on the mudflats just outside of Port Chalmers in the summer of 1979-1980, it was thought that they were the first signs that the government were planning to build a second smelter at Aramoana. Many Otago Peninsula residents began to organise their opposition to the project. While the government had announced their intention to build at Clyde, the project had lost a lot of momentum through protests and legal challenges, coupled with falling demand. In Muldoon's eyes, the second smelter at Aramoana would boost demand for power from the Clotha. The government hoped that this would help shore up support for the Clyde Dam project and speed up approval through the courts and with water rights allocations. However, opposition to the Aramoana smelter was widespread and high profile. In December of 1980, residents of Aramoana seceded from New Zealand, forming a micronation, the independent state of Aramoana. They set up border checkpoints and issued their own passports and citizenship, as well as stamps designed by artist Don Binney. Artist and resident of Carey's Bay, Ralph Hawthorne, produced a series of works in staunch opposition to the smelter, many of which are now in the most important public art collections in the country. Poets such as Bill Manhire and Brian Turner also put their opposition into words for the cause. In October of 1981, Alu Suisse, one of the companies supporting the proposed development, withdrew from the bid and Aramoana was dead in the water. Though the second aluminium smelter at Aramoana didn't amount to anything, there was plenty of action back in central Otago. With the approval of Scheme H in late 1976, the government moved forward with plans for the redevelopment of Cromwell and the roading network required for the project. New houses were required to house workers, new roads were required to carry machinery and equipment in for construction. The farmers and residents of the gorge would have to be moved and compensated for their losses. It was a massive undertaking. Cromwell was founded after the discovery of gold near the site in 1862. A town rapidly popped up at the junction of the Kawaro and Clutha rivers. It fast became the main service and distribution centre for diggings at Bannockburn and Bendigo and in the Cadrona, Arrow, Shotover and Nevis valleys. After the gold rush, Cromwell became a centre for gold dredging, large, low barges that dig up rock from the riverbed and filter it in search of gold. But the gold dredge boom bust too and Cromwell became a small agricultural centre with a railway that connected to Dunedin. By the 1970s, the population was around 1,000 residents. As early as 1974, the Power Division of the Ministry of Works and Development had set up a Clutha Valley development project, anticipating the work on the dam. At this stage, it was also expected that Clyde was just to be the first of a series of projects along the river. To this end, they planned to redevelop Cromwell as a permanent base for workers who would work on subsequent dam projects following Clyde. This was what had happened at Otamatata, with employees starting on Aviemore once Benmore was complete, and also at Twizel, with the Upper Waitaki projects. The high dam at Clyde would lead to the flooding of the current business area of Cromwell. New houses would be required for many of the existing 1,000 residents, as well as new workers and their families coming for the construction. An Upper Clutha Development Committee was formed, with representatives from the Cromwell Borough Council, the Vincent County Council, which was the council that represented the surrounding area, as well as the Ministry of Works. Their first report in January of 1975 outlined development of the town around two main neighbourhoods. Each would be centred around a primary school, one existing, one to be built on the western side of the town. The relocated town centre and a secondary school, Cromwell College, 
would be located between the two neighbourhood zones. The government acquired 315 hectares of land for the new housing in August of 1976, and the first contracts for construction went out in December. In April 1977, a few months after the decision to proceed with Scheme H, the government approved $56 million to carry out work at Cromwell. This included 1,000 new houses, bridges and roading, as well as a water reservoir, an info centre, sports fields, tennis courts, netball courts, the town centre and crown buildings. The council was to provide a refuse facility, swimming pool, museum, library, council offices, playgrounds, gardens and more. The first 33 new houses for Neighbourhood 1 were ready for use by July 77, with a further 100 in Neighbourhood 2 ready by August. Downstream of Cromwell, work had begun on the diversion channel for the Clutha River in 1977. This was the first stage of getting the site ready for construction. With work well underway on both the dam site and on the redevelopment of Cromwell, the pressure went on the government to get the water that was critical to drive the turbines. In granting the water right, the planning tribunal had maintained that they could not consider the end use of the electricity that the water was required to generate. There was some merit to this argument. They were there to decide whether the water could be allocated or not, and not to consider the wider, more complicated economic issues. However, the tribunal did maintain that the dam was dependent on the second smelter being built. Local opposition to the planning tribunal's decision was strong. In 1980, 280 orchardists, farmers and others lodged an appeal in the High Court, arguing that the planning tribunal had erred in law in disallowing evidence on the end use of the power from the dam. Judge Casey assessed this for 18 months, finally delivering a judgment in May of 1982. He held that the tribunal was able to take into account the end use of the power generated. On August 2nd, 1982, the issue of water rights was referred back to the planning tribunal. The tribunal refused to hear any new evidence about the end use of the power generated at Clyde, and with the lack of evidence that an aluminium smelter would happen, one of the partners in the smelter consortium having pulled out in late 1981, they declined the issue of a water right on August 19th. In response, the government passed the Clutha Development Clyde Dam Empowering Act on September 30th. The Act allowed the government to bypass all of the planning and water rights processes that it had just gone through, guaranteeing that water would be available for the project. Prime Minister Muldoon defended it on the grounds that the development of the Upper Clutha was of vital importance for the whole country. During the election campaign in 1981, Muldoon had laid out his rationale for the project in no uncertain terms. The rain falls and the snow melts in the Upper Clutha and the water comes down the river. Are we going to do as many people would have us do? Leave it alone and let it run out to sea? No, we're not. Are we going to build a dam and then take the electricity and put it into the alumina that we brought into the country from Australia and turn it into aluminium and sell it overseas? Yes, we are. However, not everyone in his own party agreed. Mike Minogue had been the Mayor of Hamilton before entering Parliament as the National MP for Hamilton West at the 1975 election. He frequently clashed with Muldoon and on this occasion said that he would refuse to support the bill in the House. Muldoon found support from an unlikely ally. Bruce Beetham had succeeded Mike Minogue as the Mayor of Hamilton before following him into Parliament by winning a by-election in early 1978. He was the leader of the Social Credit Party who were one of the few parties to get a representative into Parliament in the era of first-past-the-post elections. Though Social Credit had been opposed to the dam, 
Beetham and the party's other MP, Gary Knapp, visited the dam site in mid-1982 and began to reconsider their views. After what Beetham described as the toughest bargaining session of his life, Social Credit agreed to back the Empowering Act in return for policy concessions from the government. While Muldoon had got what he wanted, the two votes required to get the Clyde Dam over the line, the concessions that Beetham had fought for didn't amount to much. He and Social Credit looked like they had been played by the government, and as the pivotal votes on the bill, they were the target for much of the outrage that followed. In one action, protesters padlocked the doors of the Court of Appeal in Wellington and the High Court in Christchurch. Explaining their actions was a sign stuck to the doors. This court is now obsolete, irrelevant and just a nuisance. Accordingly, it is closed until such time as people no longer expect the law to protect their rights. This was signed by Muldoon and Beetham. One of the reasons the government had to rush through the Clyde Dam Empowering Act was due to private contractors. There had been pressure on the government to use contractors for large future projects. This was the first large dam project that used them. The construction of the Clyde Dam was to be divided between the Ministry of Works and the successful contractor. The Ministry of Works would be responsible for the dam's design and construction management, as well as all civil, hydromechanical and architectural work. New Zealand Electricity, a division of the Ministry of Energy, was responsible for the supply and installation of all electromechanical equipment, transformers, switchgear and connection to the grid. The Ministry of Works was responsible for the diversion of the river, the construction of the right abutment and the powerhouse. They also did the site works before handing it over to the contractors. The remainder of the construction, the main part of the dam, was the part that the government contracted out. They received seven tenders. The contract to construct the dam was given to the New Zealand West German joint venture Zublin Williamson, who won the tender with a bid of $108.8 million. This was the lowest bid that was tendered. While the government had chosen Zublin Williamson as the successful bidder, they weren't able to sign the contract without the water rights issue sorted first. The Clutha Development Clyde Dam Empowering Act was passed on the 30th of September, the last day that the tender from the joint venture was valid. With the water rights secured, the government signed the contract for construction with Zublin Williamson in Cromwell on October the 28th, 1982. It would be fair to say there was plenty of tension between workers and bosses through the building of Clyde Dam. One of the main points of contention was the government's desire to contract out the work, rather than relying on the Ministry of Works and their workforce. The unions saw the Zublin-Williamson joint venture as a way for the government to cut costs by reducing the wages of workers. There were strikes in both 1980 and 1981, as the unions protested the decision to employ private contractors. The possibility of a black ban was raised by the unions, which might see strikes spread to other union sites. In March of 1982, the New Zealand Workers' Union did introduce a black ban for parts of the Clyde site. For their part, the government tended to blame the unions for the project's delays. While labour issues were a problem, there were also other issues that were as significant to the delays, if not more so, such as the problems obtaining water rights. In June of 1982, Prime Minister and Finance Minister Robert Muldoon introduced a wage freeze, nominally to get rising inflation under control. The unions did not respond well to this. In September, the construction union lodged a pay claim that was 15% above that being paid to those working on the Motunui Synthetic Petrol Plant, one of Muldoon's other Think Big projects. The combined unions wanted their workers to be exempted from the wage freeze. 
Muldoon responded by calling their wage claim utter nonsense. The Federation of Labour's demands were an exemption from the wage freeze, with a guarantee of at least 50% of the workers involved in the dam being from New Zealand. The head of the joint venture, Murray Williamson, said that the demands were utterly absurd. However, the joint venture did apply to the government for exemption from the wage freeze scheme. In addition to this, the joint venture found it difficult to find suitable men to supervise the work, as the people employed on Ministry of Works power schemes were the only ones experienced in dam building in New Zealand. The overseers also needed to be able to converse with the German engineering and specialist staff. There was a break-in at the Ministry of Works site office at Clyde, in which files from a locked filing cabinet were taken. The police interviewed Calvin Fisher, one of the union advocates at the site, about the missing files. The police told him they were acting on allegations made by Murray Williamson, the director of the joint venture. Wage negotiations started in October of 1982. Talks broke down again in March of 1983. And then after resumption, they broke down again in June of 1983. The government made it clear to the joint venture that they could not assist in the stalled negotiations. Then Jim Bolger, the Minister of Labour, agreed to intervene but was given a deadline of one week. In early August, Fisher, Bolger and Minister of Works Tony Friedlander met with representatives of the joint venture in Wellington. The managing director of Ed Zublin, a Mr H. Zola, had flown out from Germany to personally help with the negotiations. Following the meeting, Calvin Fisher returned to Christchurch the next day. That night, his car was broken into and all the files relating to the negotiations were stolen. Despite all this intrigue, an agreement was reached between the joint venture and the private sector unions in August of 1983. Where the workers lived also had a large impact on their militancy. Those who lived in project housing didn't have to pay rent and could receive a hardship benefit while they were involved in industrial action. This wasn't the case for those who weren't housed by the project, who were paying rent or a mortgage in Clyde or Alexandra and found it much more difficult to live for extended periods of time without a paycheck. In June of 1984, with increasing dissent within his own party, a stagnant economy and growing protests about the wage freeze, Muldoon called a snap election. David Lange became the Prime Minister, leading what was the fourth Labour government. Labour had gained 13 seats, while National lost 10. The Social Credit Party again had two seats, though their leader Bruce Beetham lost his Rangitike seat. Though many factors, including Beetham's ill health and boundary changes to his electorate, played into the loss, his support of the Clyde Dam, in opposition to many of the rank and file of his party, was a significant part in this. With Labour in possession of a commanding majority, Social Credit's two seats wouldn't again be as important as they had been in the much closer Parliament elected at the 1981 election. One of the first decisions of the fourth Labour government would be to end Muldoon's wage freeze. This was cheered on by the workers, but many of the other policies enacted by Longy, his finance minister Roger Douglas, and his cabinet would not be. As we approach the halfway point of this episode, let me change tack to something a bit more light-hearted before we get back into the endless delays that blighted the project. The 1985 film Shaker Run centres on two stunt car drivers who race through the South Island with a doctor who has stolen a deadly virus from a research lab. Starting off in Dunedin, where Larnock Castle stands in for a secret New Zealand government bioweapons facility, the three speed across the landscape in a pink and black Trans Am to meet their CIA rendezvous at the under-construction Clyde Dam. 
It's an ambush, and they have to escape from the armed New Zealand secret police, who swarm over the dam in grey jumpsuits and Bedford vans. The scene takes place at night, which makes it difficult to make out the scale of the dam, especially if you're watching the low-definition version of the movie that has been uploaded to YouTube. Despite the blocky quality, it's still fascinating to see the construction site, with parts of the dam nearing completion, as well as the extensive facilities required for undertaking such a massive project. Following the shootout at Clyde Dam, the action speeds through Queenstown, Blenheim, Picton and Wellington. The film itself is as dated as you might expect, a much more low-budget production than the movies set in this country today. It's fascinating to see the towns as they were in the 80s, as well as the cars and the uniforms used by the police. The three lead actors have a great rapport together and elevate the film above being just a curiosity. Cliff Robertson, who plays the grizzled stunt driver Judd Pearson, is perhaps best known today for his role as Uncle Ben in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, but actually won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in the 1968 film Charlie. His young mechanic sidekick Casey Lee is played by musician-slash-child star Leif Garrett, who was fresh off his role alongside Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Matt Dillon, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze and Ralph Macchio in Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders. The defecting doctor... Christine Rubin is played by Lisa Harrow, who was born in New Zealand but trained in England and brings that very proper BBC accent to the role. At the time of filming, Harrow was married to fellow actor and noted lover of Central Otago, Sam Neill. There are definitely worse films to spend an hour and a half watching. They cover a whole lot of New Zealand scenery, even if it is at speed, and it would be great if it could get a restoration or at least a decent re-release. With progress on the dam now theoretically unencumbered, it is worth talking about the design and construction of the project. Clyde Dam is a concrete gravity dam, the largest of that type in New Zealand. The Benmore Dam, which is significantly larger, is an earth embankment dam. The Clyde Dam is 490 metres wide and 102 metres tall. It is 68 metres wide at the base. In total, it required more than 840,000 cubic metres of concrete, with a further 200,000 for the powerhouse. The river was diverted by July of 1982. This allowed the Ministry of Works to start excavations for the foundations of the central dam blocks and powerhouse. The Ministry of Works was responsible for building the right abutment, as well as the powerhouse. They started this in 1983, whilst passing the site over to the joint venture. After the area had been cleaned down and handed over by the Ministry of Works to the joint venture in 1983, extensive seismic faulting was found in the dam's foundation rock. The Ministry of Works decided that additional excavation was required. A report was done on the Dunstan fault line in 1983. This confirmed that the faults at the dam's site weren't active. However, it was found that the dam would need to be designed to take a 200mm displacement event in the event of an earthquake. This advice led to the inclusion of a slip joint in the design of the dam. The main fault at the dam site was the River Channel Fault, the RCF, which ran along the riverbed right below where the dam was to be built. It was thought that the last activity on the fault was around 50,000 years ago, and that any activity on the fault was not likely to occur within the useful lifespan of the dam. The dam's slip joint is in the part of the dam over the fault, with the powerhouse on one side of the joint and the spillway on the other. The river channel fault is inactive, and while the Dunstan fault is active, the greatest risk to the dam is thought to come from a quake along the Alpine fault. It is perhaps easy in retrospect to say that we shouldn't build dams on top of fault lines, but the extent of the fault lines at the site wasn't apparent in the initial assessment and was only discovered during the extensive work at the site excavating foundations. 
The Ministry of Works and the joint venture disagreed over the cost of undertaking this work. The extra bulk extraction work caused cash flow problems for the joint venture. The Ministry of Works ordered that the work be done by selected contractors, with the rate paid only including a low overhead. The international contractors were operating on a 70% markup rather than the 10% allowed by the Ministry of Works. Working conditions were difficult, with conditions ranging from temperatures well above 30 degrees in summer down to below 10 in winter. This made concrete pouring more difficult, as large changes in temperature can affect the strength. In summer, some of the water in the mix was replaced with flaked ice, and in winter, the water was sometimes heated. Progress in 1984 was about half of what was expected, due to further excavation being required, and problems with the concrete pour. The excavation work on the fault lines required 250,000 additional cubic metres of excavations. This extra work was not completed until 1986. The joint venture started placing concrete in the left abutment of the dam in 1984, by which time the right abutment, being built by the Ministry of Works, was almost complete. By early 1986 the project as a whole was half finished, and a year later the workforce reached a peak of 1,200. Good progress had been made on the dam, with 600,000 cubic metres of concrete placed in a year and nearly half of its blocks up to crest height. By early 1988 the project was three quarters finished and the last concrete was placed in mid-1989. Much of the heavy equipment required for power generation, penstocks, gates, actuators, was delivered to Clyde by rail. Clyde has four 7.8 metre diameter penstocks, each driving a turbine that generates 108 megawatts. The total generation for Clyde was 432 megawatts upon completion, although a change in the resource consent issued in 2005 allowed generation to rise to 464 megawatts. Assembly of the penstocks started in 1986. The powerhouse building, along with the penstocks and all the equipment required for generating electricity, was in place by August of 1989. However, generation had to wait until the lake was filled, which was dependent on the work being undertaken to stabilise the landslips in the gorge. With the dam flooding the Cromwell Gorge and Lake Dunstan expanding upstream from the town, major work had to be done to the roading network in the region. In October 1983, the cost of roading works was estimated at $50 million. Though with the complications posed by the landscape of the region, this was likely to increase. A total of 50 kilometres of state highways were affected by the Clutha Valley development, and five new bridges were required. This included a new bridge at Deadman's Point to connect to Cromwell, new bridges at Bannockburn and Lowburn, as well as a new bypass at Clyde. There were also significant improvements to the Lindus Pass, the Alpine Pass that connects central Otago to the Mackenzie District. The work on the road between Taras and Otamatata would also allow for the transport of plant and heavy machinery from Timaru and Christchurch. As well as displacing the Clyde to Cromwell Road, the flooding of the gorge would also displace the orchards found there. There were 12 orchards along 86 hectares of the gorge. The primary crop of these orchards was apricots. At the time, Central Otago had around 495 hectares of apricots, and 70 hectares were in the gorge. There were unique growing conditions in the gorge. The apricots produced here ripened two weeks earlier than the rest of Central Otago, which gave them a competitive advantage. As part of the assistance deal the government gave the orchardists, 2,500 of the apricot trees were transplanted outside of the gorge. A large amount of the rich soil from the gorge was also removed and transported elsewhere. As well as flooding 12 orchards, there were a further 5 orchards and 6 farms that would no longer be economically viable after the gorge was flooded. 
About 280 people who lived in the area affected by the creation of Lake Dunstan would lose their homes or have to move. With progress resuming on the dam, construction accelerated again at Cromwell. By 1984, there were around 500 new houses, including 90 that had been shifted from Twizel. The new bridge over the Clutha at Dead Man's Point was opened in November 1984, with the first shops and information centre opening the following month. The town centre was officially opened by the Ministry of Works and Development, Fraser Coleman, in February 1985. With the new parts of town now opening, demolition of the area that was to be flooded could start. So many trees were required for the landscaping of Cromwell that the Ministry of Works set up their own nursery in Lowburn Valley. They planted 300 trees, 3,800 shrubs and 1,100 ground cover plants just in the town centre. By 1986, Cromwell's population had almost tripled in under a decade, going from 1,200 in 1976 to 3,500. The growing population of the town would no longer be serviced by a railway, however. The route went through the gorge and thus was another casualty of the creation of Lake Dunstan. The Clyde to Cromwell Railway, which had been a key link for the high country stations in the area, was closed in April of 1980. Though it was unlikely to carry passengers again, it could have been part of the Otago Central Rail Trail, which terminates where the railway did in Clyde and is one of the main drivers of domestic tourism in the region. But rail had long been surpassed by road as the main transport link for the region, so the work on the improvements to the route through the gorge was critical. It was only as construction began on the new roading through the gorge that the challenges the geology of the area presented became apparent. The risks uncovered would lead to cost blowouts and huge delays, as the instability of the hills surrounding the lake were investigated, then remediated. The geology of the area had been scoped out before construction started. The risks of landslides in the gorge had been identified in the 1970s, but it wasn't thought to be high risk. By 1982, it was thought that all the major risk areas had been identified and investigated. However, as work on the road through the gorge started, more potential risks, such as artesian water flows under stable landslips, were found. In 1985, a mass movement committee was established to coordinate the investigation of landslide risk and roading routes. While there was finally good progress on the construction of the dam, the new awareness of the landslide hazard meant that the potential date for filling the lake was pushed out. In some cases, drainage tunnels were built into the landslides to remove excess water and reduce the risk of slippage. The dam was meant to start filling from September of 1989, but a report early that year recommended that more investigation of the landslide data be undertaken. By mid-1989, dozens of monitor holes had been drilled all along the gorge. There was a rapid escalation of landslide activity in 1989, and Electrocorp, more on them soon, brought in a panel of international experts to consider and review all aspects of the landslide stabilisation work. In June of 1989, they recommended that additional work would be needed before filling the dam could begin. This delayed filling until March of 1990 at the earliest. Electrocorp Chair Roderick Dean admitted that it knew the Clyde Dam had potential landslide problems before the company bought it in April 1988, but they were caught out by the gross underestimation of the cost of the remedial work. While an estimate in 1988 had put a figure of $11 million on the work, this turned out to only cover the cost of two of the potential landslides. By March of 1990, the cost of remediating the landslides had blown out to $337 million. Electrocorp engaged an international panel to assess the risk and confirm that the stabilisation work was being done in sufficient detail. By March 1990, the full extent of the work required to stabilise the Cromwell Gorge was becoming clear. The panel said that some of the hazards in the gorge were potentially catastrophic. 
The risk was not just of falling rocks or landslides blocking the road and damaging cars, but of a serious displacement event. This would see huge chunks of the hillside along the gorge sliding into the lake, which could rapidly rise the level of the lake, overflowing the dam and causing damaging waves that were a serious risk to both people on or by the lake and the dam itself. By now, the filling of the lake was delayed until November 1991 to allow more time for work to be completed. The cost of the work was estimated at $337 million, with 87% of this cost going towards stabilising just two areas, the Brewery Creek and Nine Mile Creek landslides. The Brewery Creek landslide was estimated to contain 150 million cubic metres of spoil, while Nine Mile Creek was twice that. There was extensive tunnelling through both slips, with pumping stations set up to remove excess water to reduce the risk of slides. Across the gorge from Brewery Creek was the Cairnmuir landslide. To mitigate risk here, 2.6 hectares of land was put into benches of reinforced land between 3.5 and 4.2 metres tall. These help to limit the amount of surface water that enters the frontal area of the landslide. The series of benches used to control the landslide looks like steps cut into the hill, like the terraced gardens you might find in the Incan Andes. The Cairnmuir landslide was also the site of an anti-dam protest action. Hands off Beaumont was written in large white letters on the hillside, just below the protection works. Beaumont is a small town lower down the Clutha, where a proposal for an additional hydro dam would have seen the town flooded. The letters were written overnight, seen in the morning, and cleaned up by the afternoon. There was an election in 1987, which Labour won again. There were few areas that were spared the sweeping reforms of Douglas, Preble, Longy and the gang, and Clyde Dam wasn't one of them. The Ministry of Works and Development was abolished. Work at the dam site was now the responsibility of the Works and Development Services Corporation. There was no longer a Minister of Works and Development in Parliament. Similarly, the Electricity Division of the Ministry of Energy had become the Electricity Corporation of New Zealand, ECNZ, also known as Electricorp. The Electricity Division had been responsible for the supply and installation of all electromechanical equipment, transformers, switchgear and connection to the grid. This responsibility now shifted to Electricorp. Within Electricorp was a separate company called PowerBuild NZ, which was engaged to do the design, build and install work that had previously been the remit of the Ministry of Works. Labour lost the 1990 election, but the spirit of neoliberal reform continued on with the Bolger government. On September 26, 1990, the new Minister of State Services, Clive Mathewson, announced that Electricorp had taken control of the Clyde Dam project. It had been agreed by Cabinet that the government would pay Electricorp $340 million for the land stabilisation work, and Electricorp would settle the claims between the government and Electricorp by paying the government $31.4 million. Around the same time, the joint venture was claiming around $100 million from the government for unforeseen work that it had undertaken on the project. A lengthy arbitration case started in 1989 and concluded in late 1990. When the ruling from the arbitration was announced, the joint venture was awarded $30 million plus $1.36 million in costs. There were also more delays for the joint venture, with strikes and industrial action continuing to delay the project. In David Ellis's comprehensive A History of the Clyde Power Project, he mentioned that there was a 13-day strike as a result of a pub brawl in Cromwell that I'd love to know more about, but have been unable to find any information on. More significantly, and much better documented, was a major strike in 1988. This lasted 125 days and was triggered by arguments over the collective agreement. It was eventually ended by strike-breaking workers. With the end of the Clyde Project in sight, 
the decision of the government to delay and then cancel further projects on the Clutha was met with industrial action by workers worried about their future employment. Many had moved to Cromwell, thinking that Clyde would just be the first of many projects, but the numerous problems that blighted the project, as well as the changing attitudes to major hydro projects, contributed to the government scaling back their ambitions. After all the strikes and restructuring at government level, work at the dam resumed and was completed by August 1989. However, filling the lake was dependent on the stabilisation work on the land being complete. In August 1991, the international panel that were monitoring progress on the landslide stabilisation reported that work was ahead of schedule and below budget. They advised that the filling of the lake could start in stages, from May of 1992. The stabilisation work was completed in April 1992, and lake filling then commenced. The lake was permitted an operating level of 194.5 metres, with a holding level of 177 metres, that allowed for some generation while testing the stability of the area. The first electricity was produced at Clyde Dam in June of 1992. On April 23, 1994, almost 18 years after the project was signed off by Cabinet, the Clyde Dam was officially opened by Prime Minister Jim Bolger. With early investigations into the project starting in the early 1960s, it had been an active issue under nine Prime Ministers, Holyoke, Marshall, Kirk, Rowling, Muldoon, Longy, Palmer, Moore and Bolger. The cost of the project is hard to calculate due to the various cost blowouts, legal issues and the length of the construction. It was also a time of significant inflation. Following completion, a spokesperson for Electrocorp said that the effective cost of Clyde was $1 billion, with an extra $400 million on the land stabilisation programme. Like the dam itself, the cost of roading in the gorge blew out due to the instability of the ground, which required additional work. At completion, the total cost of roading for the Clutha Valley development was $99 million, with $70 million of that for work in the gorge. The remainder went on the road through Lindis Pass, the bridge at Deadman's Point, and other work around Lowburn. Tallying it all up and adjusting for inflation, Clyde probably cost about $2.65 billion in 2021 dollars. This is about the same as Manapori, which produces more than 800 megawatts of power in comparison to Clyde's 462, and significantly more expensive than Benmore, which produces 540 megawatts. The roading improvements both through the gorge and over the Lindis Pass helped to open up the central Otago region to the rest of the South Island. Today, certainly pre-COVID, this region is one of the country's premier tourist destinations. While many visitors come in on a plane, the improvements to the road have made it much easier to get to Wanaka and Queenstown via road. Cromwell, though lacking the million dollar lake and mountain views, has become an important part of the Central Lakes region. From a population of around 1,000 in the 1970s, more than 5,600 people called Cromwell home at the 2018 census. Many tradespeople live there, as the rent is far more affordable than that of Queenstown or Wanaka. At least, it was. All of these things are relative. While the region would likely have moved into high-value tourism regardless of the Clyde Dam, the redevelopment of Cromwell, the improvements to the road and the presence of large numbers of well-paid and highly skilled workers during the construction was a catalyst for the growth. Though the town has grown and its economy diversified, the stone fruit orchards that lined the gorge are still important to the region. Cromwell's horticulture was celebrated in 1990, when the local Rotary Club commissioned the giant fruit sculpture that was erected near the entrance to the town. 
Designed by Otto Muller of Rippenvale, the idea was to acknowledge the contribution fruit and orchards have made to the central Otago economy. The political ramifications of the Clyde Dam were no less significant. Controversy surrounded the construction of the dam, dragging numerous prime ministers and politicians into its black hole. Perhaps reluctant to get embroiled in a similar situation, Clyde Dam was the last of the major hydro schemes built in this country. While there was certainly opposition to it on environmental grounds, this was just one objection. There was widespread opposition to the Clyde Dam Empowering Act. Many felt that the government was ignoring the rule of law, having written the law in response to not getting their way in the courts. At the 1984 general election, Bruce Beetham, the leader of the Social Credit Party whose support Muldoon relied on to pass the Empowering Act, lost his seat. The incoming Labour government passed the Environment Act in 1986, establishing an independent parliamentary commissioner for the environment, in part to avoid legal chicanery such as this. In 2009, reflecting on his time in politics, former Labour Deputy Prime Minister Sir Michael Cullen said that the dam represented the single most monstrous environmental sin over the last 30 years. While Muldoon and others had viewed the water in the river as a resource to be harnessed by man, the Clyde Dam made people think about the other values provided by wild rivers. As highlighted by Catherine Knight in her History of New Zealand Rivers, it precipitated the first steps towards the protection of New Zealand's remaining free-flowing rivers and stretches of rivers with outstanding wild or scenic value. Submissions opposing the Clyde Dam prompted the development of a wild river protection policy, which eventually led, in 1994, to the Kawaro Water Conservation Order, which protects much of the catchment upstream from Lake Dunstan. In the decades since Clyde, there have been no new large hydro dams built in this country. In the early 2000s, Meridian Energy proposed a series of hydro schemes on the Waitaki River, known as Project Aqua. However, there was widespread opposition to the project, and Meridian abandoned it in early 2004. The same company floated the idea of another scheme on the Waitaki in 2008, even going as far as obtaining a water use consent, but again, it didn't eventuate. There was also widespread opposition to a proposal to put a dam on one of the wild rivers of the west coast, the Mokahanui, which prevented this scheme from ever leaving the drawing board. Hydroelectric power is still the largest source of electricity in New Zealand, providing around 57% of our power. When you add in the geothermal stations in the North Island, as well as the increasing capacity for wind generation, about 81% of our power comes from renewable sources. While this is comparatively high in a global context, the percentage was as high as 90% in the 1970s. Fossil fuels, mainly coal and gas, are still burnt to generate power, which is less than ideal. Additional renewable energy projects, including new hydro schemes, may be needed in the future. With any proposed scheme will come a thorough examination of our priorities as a nation, how we attempt to balance economic interests with environmental values. In 1886, water from the Shotover River was used to generate electricity for the first time in New Zealand at the Bullendale Power Station. Just over a century later, water from the same river, flowing into the Kawaro and then to the Clutha, would drive the turbines at the country's newest and last major hydro scheme. In the years between, electricity had completely reshaped the way New Zealanders lived, worked, commuted and enjoyed themselves. Along the way, it had also challenged the way our society organised itself took care of its workers, housed its citizens, and treated the environment. That's it for this episode, and probably this series, of Damn the River. 
Damn the River was researched, written, produced and recorded by me, James Macbeth Dan. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, then maybe you can think of someone else who might also enjoy it too. If you're looking for more of my sporadically produced content, then you can follow me on Twitter at E-D-M-U-Z-I-K, or subscribe to my substack, jamesmacbethdan.substack.com.